I call it good trouble. I call it necessary trouble. And every so often, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to say, no, no. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Voices of the Movement, a series from my podcast, Cape Up, sharing stories of some of the leaders of the civil rights movement and their lessons on where we go from here. If you've ever heard Congressman John Lewis speak, you may have heard him say this phrase about good trouble, necessary trouble, when talking about the famous march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, a march that turned violent and became forever known as Bloody Sunday. In order to understand Bloody Sunday, you have to know how Lewis and 600 other marchers got to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the first place and why. Let me just tell a story that's been bothering me. You may remember Andrew Young from the first episode of this series. He was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s chief strategist at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. On the first night of the Sunnyland Civil Rights Retreat, I happened to have my phone recording while people were doing introductions, and Young got to telling this remarkable story about one day in 1964. Coming back from uh, Martin's Nobel Prize trip, we stopped off in Washington. We were scheduled to see President Johnson. King and Young were set to meet the president to talk about passing a Voting Rights Act. And so we went in and made the case for voting rights. And President Johnson said that he agreed with everything Martin said, but he just didn't have the power. And he must have said at least 10 times uh, in the conversation, I agree with you, Dr. King, I just don't have the power. A few months earlier, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 after things like the Birmingham campaign and the March on Washington drew Americans' attention to the civil rights movement. And President Johnson didn't see how he could go back to Congress and ask for another big vote on civil rights. He argued nobody in Congress had the appetite for it. So King and Young leave the meeting. I agreed with the president. Uh, We came out and I said this and he said no. I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, we're going to get the president some power. I said, come on, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I said, that's the height of arrogance. You're going to get the president some power, you know? And mm-hmm. he, he kept saying no. And I realized he was serious. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we didn't have a clue as to how we were going to get the president. Maybe he did. But I don't think he did. But I think... He was, he was determined that, that something had to happen. They set their sights on Selma, Alabama. See, even though the Civil Rights Act of 1964 forbade discrimination in voting on the basis of race, efforts to register African Americans to vote was still met with heavy resistance in places like Alabama. The state set up so-called literacy tests that determined African Americans couldn't read or write well enough to vote by posing impossible questions that had little to do with their ability to read or write. And so one day in February 1965, some civil rights activists in Alabama were marching for their voting rights when their protest was attacked by a mob of white segregationists. One of those activists, Jimmy Lee Jackson, was beaten and shot to death by an Alabama state trooper. Jimmy Lee Jackson got shot. It was a deliberate 
act of evil uh, coming from the, the society we were confronting. Mm -hmm. But it was that act of evil that pushed us to uh, think about marching from Selma to Montgomery. Others were already talking about moving to Montgomery because we kind of worn out the people in Selma. Andrew Young and Hosea Williams, another member of the SCLC, helped organize a march starting in Selma with the goal of making it to the state capitol in Montgomery. We set up the march for the second Sunday in March. Everybody thought that the second Sunday in March was the 7th of March. But the preachers knew that that was the first Sunday. And so they were not there. Uh, and here the people show up ready to march, and none of the big shot preachers are there. We decided that we ought to turn them around. Nobody wanted to turn around. And we couldn't put it off. So I, I, I said, uh, well, they're probably just going to arrest us. And he said, well, don't you go. Uh, you know, but anyway, we flipped coins. Jose ended up going with John, with John Lewis. Yes, it's the Edmund. Pettis Bridge, crossing the Alabama River. We were on our way from Selma to Montgomery to dramatize to the nation and to the world that the black people in the black belt of Alabama wanted to register to vote, to participate in the democratic process. People had to pass a so-called literacy test. People were told they could not read or write well enough. People were asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar soap the number of jelly beans in the jar. There were African-American lawyers and doctors, college professors, teachers who flunked the so-called literacy test. We had to do it. I spoke with Congressman John Lewis last year for an episode of Cape Up. If you've seen the iconic photograph of Lewis marching on the bridge that day, you know he was wearing a light trench coat and a backpack. And as a seasoned demonstrator, he always anticipated being arrested. So in that backpack was an orange, some books, toothbrush, and toothpaste. And I had also also an apple. Right, and, and, and an apple, because you just knew. Well, I thought we would we'd be arrested, and we would be going to jail. So I wanted to have something to read. I wanted to have something to eat. Since I was going to be in jail with my friends and colleagues and neighbors, I wanted to be able to brush my teeth. Uh, all these many years later, I don't know what happened to the backpack, to the apple, the orange, or the toothpaste, or the toothbrush. But we, we had to march that day. We had to walk across that bridge. We got on the other side of the bridge. There was a group of state troopers standing, and the major said, the Alabama State Police, this is an unlawful march. We will not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your homes or to your church. And one of the guys walking with me, leading the march, by the name of Jose William, said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. And the Major said again, Troop advance. I said, Major, may I have a word? He said, that would be no word. Troopers advance. You saw these guys putting on a gas mask. They came toward us beating us with nightsticks, tramping us with horses. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went 
from under me. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. And to this day, I don't know how I made it back across that bridge through the streets of Salma, back to the little church where we had left from. But I do remember being back at the church. They asked me to say something. And I stood up and said, I don't understand it. That President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam. And can I send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desires to register to vote? I was hospitalized with 16 other people. And a group of nuns took care of us. Reflecting on that time, Andrew Young believes there was a reason why what happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge that day captured the American imagination. And that bloody Sunday was a cold day in March in New England. The movie that had been showing that afternoon was Judgment at Nuremberg. And Judgment at Nuremberg breaks and all of the liberal Northeast see Selma with horses and uh, tear gas beating up Ms. Amelia Boynton and all of the others. It, it, it was an accident. None of that could be planned. It's just a series of accidents. On March 15th, eight days after Bloody Sunday, President Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress the speech he made is widely regarded by presidential historians as one of the best presidential addresses ever delivered. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. Somehow, with nothing but some kind of mysterious spiritual uh, intuition, I don't even know what to call it. Martin got Johnson to power. Six days after President Johnson's historic address, King was back in Selma. This time, With the backing of the president, he was joined by 2,000 people in Selma to complete the march from the Edmund Pettus Bridge to the state capitol. The historic march from Selma to Montgomery took 12 days and covered 50 miles. And by the time King arrived at the Alabama state capitol, this time under federal protection, the march had swelled to 50,000 people. Five months later, President Johnson signed into law the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that guaranteed the right to vote to all African Americans. For the past 54 years, John Lewis has been going back to that bridge, back to Selma and Montgomery, 
He visits the places where history was made, and he reflects on the journey and the lessons we can learn from it. And starting in 1998, working with the Faith and Politics Institute, Lewis started bringing members of Congress with him. It's called the Civil Rights Pilgrimage to Alabama. I've been on it three times now, and each time more powerful than the last. The journey is as much a somber remembrance as it is a celebration of what was achieved. It's three jammed packed days of history with the people who made it, in the rooms and the churches and along the highways where it all happened. The 16th Street Baptist Church that was bombed in Birmingham in 1963. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, where Martin Luther King was pastor. Brown Chapel in Selma, where the Bloody Sunday marchers gathered before and after that fateful day. But every year, the emotional core of the entire trip comes on day two, when we walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with John Lewis. Oh, are you recording already? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're at 32 seconds in. Mm-hmm. Well, so this is day two of the pilgrimage to Selma, Montgomery, and Birmingham. For me now, half the fun is watching people to see the emotion to see the ones who are overwhelmed. The ones who are overwhelmed are the ones who get it. Starting at the bottom of the bridge, we marched hand in hand and sang songs of the movement. When we got to the top of the bridge, we stopped to listen to Lewis. Good morning. Thank you for being here. And then Cheyenne Webb told her story. Then, just eight years old, she snuck out of her house and became the youngest person to participate in the march on Bloody Sunday. I'll never forget as I was running, looking at others running. The late Hosea Williams picked me up and my little feet were still galloping in his arms. And I turned to him. I was very serious as tear gas was burning my eyes. And I said to him, in my own childish voice, put me down because you are not running fast enough. (laughs) And then Betty Mae Fikes, known as the voice of Selma, recounted her experience. And all of a sudden, the ground under me started to shake like an earthquake. The posse was on horses and beating on our bodies like it was, like they were playing water polo. You could hear the cracks, old women being knocked down. And all I can say is, Lord, where are you? Where are you? But we let it in songs, come back here, Lord. Come back here. Come back here, Lord. Come back here. Come by here, Lord. Yes. Come by here, oh, Lord. Come by here. 
If you listen carefully, you'll hear what I think was one of the most powerful moments of this year's pilgrimage happening. Yeah, right there. That is the sound of Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester of Delaware sobbing as she was overcome with the emotion of the moment. Her initial wail was so startling, so human, that I had to talk to her about it later. So when we got back to Washington, I went to her office to ask her about what happened. This was my second time on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I had gone on this same trip two years ago, and it was moving for me then, but this time it was more moving and um, more pivotal. And so I'm listening to John Lewis and... And I've heard some of him the stories before because they're, that some of them are seared in my, my heart. And I'm listening to uh, someone made a comment about like the rumbling. You could feel the shaking of the ground almost with all of these people running during that time. And for some reason, I could feel it. I could physically feel the rumbling of the bridge and all of these people who during that time were fighting for the rights that we have today, the ability for me to even stand on that bridge as a congresswoman. And um, I felt that. And then Betty Mae Fikes, oh my goodness, she started singing. That's when I lost it. Um, My hands are actually tingling right now. That's when I lost it because in that moment, I just felt like, Babies were taken from parents during slavery. We had seen that in the museum, we, but we're witnessing it today. And I just kept thinking about the parallels. And I thought about Charlottesville and I thought about, I just thought about the past two years and how much weight has been put on us as Americans. And, and I just sobbed. I sobbed. For our history, I wept for where we are today. And when Deb Holland and and Veronica Escobar put their hands on me, it was healing. It was healing. It was like these three different cultures coming together. I got your back, you know, and I could feel that. And that in that moment, I could even feel people around me they all started putting their hands on me and 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 you know you you felt this we're in it together and and i that that's what lifted me back up was that we are in this together do you think you would have shown or could have shown the kind of courage john lewis showed back then I, I I would hope I would have, um, but I I know I know for myself. Even as a kid, like my first protest, I was in the seventh grade, and I remember leading a protest because the school I was going to allowed the boys to have gym. We had a shortened uh, day, and they allowed the boys to have gym, but not the girls. And I started this chant at recess: "You gave it to them. Now we want gym, and we wouldn't leave the playground." And you know. It's part of what young people do, but what they did was put their lives on the line. Like, it wasn't comfortable. 
you know, and and that's why it's so, so significant. And so I I would hope that I would have. I know even in this role today, um, there are folks that, you know, it's part of what you have to do is step up and speak up. And um, and, and it's not always easy. But they put their lives on the line for us. And uh, I, I, I just I, I, I am I'm, I am honored to be able to be serving with John Lewis. I mean, can you imagine? Like I get to see him on the floor. I get to talk to him. I watch him as he interacts with other people. And he's just a real role model for for a different kind of leadership. You know? Not, I love how he talks about getting into good trouble. You know, he, he can say things and be very clear about it and very strong about it, but not mean about it. And I think in a time like this, people crave that. You know, I, I do. I love that kind of leadership where it is truly about love, that radical love that they talked about, you know, that Dr. King talked about. That's, that's really what it's about. That's what it's all about, love. During our interview last year, Congressman Lewis explained why he makes the annual trip to Alabama. I've been going back every year since 1965, except for one. You have to go back. You you get young people, and people are not so young to go back, to understand, to learn, to be inspired. That when they see something, that it's not right or fair or just. They too can do something or say something. You have to go back. And at no point do you ever feel burdened by the history that you have lived, that you embody, um, that is literally within your lifetime, my lifetime, maybe most of the nation's lifetime. Well, it's just so much happened in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Georgia, and other parts of the South that people need to know about. And the highlight going back there was 50th anniversary, walking across the bridge with the first African-American president, Barack Obama. In one afternoon 50 years ago, so much of our turbulent history the stain of slavery and anguish of civil war, the yoke of segregation and tyranny of Jim Crow, the death of four little girls in Birmingham, and the dream of a Baptist preacher. All that history met on this bridge. I think we both were deeply moved by just walking together across that bridge. I'm just saying to myself, this is it. If someone had told me and told others when we walked across that bridge, the 600 of us, that one day in our lifetime, we'll be walking across that bridge in the presence of the first African-American president. Just being there with President Obama made me cry, and I think he teared up too. But in the final analysis, we will make it the 
more bridges to cross, but we will make it. And it will be the young people, the children that will help us get there in spite of all that is going on today. It just, I, I just believe deeply within, it's just a matter of time that fate and history will come together and we will get there. Coming up on Voices of the Movement, participants in the Sunnylands Retreat and the Selma Pilgrimage help explore how the themes of the past and the present connect. 